This is the I Read Comic Books podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. This is our first episode, well, first full episode in 2018. This week, I am joined by two fantastic human beings, Kira Shamborski. Hey. And Tia Vasiliu. Hello. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm super excited to be back. We've had a couple weeks off to, you know, rejuvenate with the holidays and the new year and all that stuff. But before we get this show started this week, I have to say congratulations to Danny and Philip in the Goodreads group. They completed the I Read Comic Books reading challenge. They read all 19 books. And as a reward for completing that, because maybe I did some poor planning on my part, I didn't think about the year 2018 enough, they got to pick (laughs) the book of the month for January, which is a book I think that everyone in this entire group and everyone that listens to this show loves called I Kill Giants. It's a fantastic comic book. If you haven't had a chance to read it, do it because we're going to do a whole episode about it. No, no, we're not doing an episode about it because our whole Goodreads thing, it all changed. So (laughs) nonetheless, go read that book. Go comment on the Goodreads thread. We're going to have people who are in charge of this month's episode, like topic or this month's book of the month topic, I should say. And they'll be, you know, talking with everyone to make sure that they've all read it and getting into the details and nitty gritty of the book. So with that all said. Mike's 2018 (laughs) is off to a really organized start. 2018, like 2017, except there's less of it so far. Yeah. (laughs) All things considered, I feel like I'm doing much better at the beginning of this year than I did last year, despite those multiple flub ups on my part. So let me let me ask the question. You know, actually, one other thing we did, we got Kickstarter T-shirts that arrived in the mail at my house, stickers and pins. We've got these really cool enamel pins that are going out to all the Kickstarter backers. I've got like a billion things in a corner of my apartment, and I'm super excited to hand give those to people and hand them out to all the crew and the I read comic book stuff. And we made special T-shirts for ourselves, which I can't wait to show off to everyone once we all have them. <laughs> so it's so many cool things are happening this year. Emerald City Comic Con Q and A episodes, which are starting. We'll talk about all that after the break but anyways let me ask the question that we talk about and ask every single week how have you been how have comic books been let's start with you tia well uh with windchill it's like negative 25 here and oh my goodness oh my god yeah did you move to like greenland or something <laughs> like that <laughs> storm man yeah oh, i'm in right, the berkshires right. so it's um pretty cold there's a lot of snow we didn't lose power so that was good um oh. that that can happen or the first winter I lived here, the pipes kept bursting when it got this cold. None of that's oh, happened. Because, okay, listen, we're from Southern California, so we don't know the rules. Like, <laughs> the first winter we lived here, we never shoveled our driveway, and oh, no. then it just kept turning into ice and getting more snow on it. So, oh, like, no. what, what could we do at that point? So, right. you know, uh, we did we did get our act together with the shoveling the snow at least and we like turned the taps on and things right yeah anyway i mean yeah that's that's a it's, whole problem Ugh, ugh. It's i can't good, even imagine good um you know snuggle up in a blanket and reading kind of weather which is basically what i've been doing and it's been great I am rereading all of ElfQuest, starting with the complete ElfQuest Volume 1. Ooh. Yeah, because the final quest is reaching its conclusion, and I just, you know, it seems like a good moment to go back and and read everything straight through, especially because, you know, I don't know if anyone um, caught when I was on a guest on the ElfQuest podcast, and we were talking about uh, the panel that I moderated at Comic-Con with the Peenies where the the topic of time and the passing of time uh, really was a, I don't know, 
it was an it was an interesting point that that we discussed from a number of angles. And so, ElfQuest is not really. Uh, it wasn't designed, I think, to be read straight through from the very, very first all the way up to the the final quest that's that's in its conclusion now. Really? So, so I think it'll be really interesting to have the kind of perspective that that I have to, uh, you know, I don't know. I've read it a number of times, and so this will give me, I think, a, a new take on it, which I'm really looking forward to. Very cool. Yeah. I, I, ElfQuest is still one of those books that I'm like, I got to sit down. It's so daunting, but I know that I just got to sit down and just take it piece by piece, like once a week, read it, read a couple of issues or something like that. And I know that I could do it. Well, that's not how it works. You're, if you pick up the uh, <laughs> the complete ElfQuest volume one, you'll read all 700 pages in oh one sitting. Oh like God. you Wait, just will. Tia, why, why isn't it supposed to be read sequentially? Or like, why wasn't it I mean, designed I'm to not, be read sequentially? I, only because it's been around for 40 years and I'm sure that the the Peenies, you know, I don't know, approach or, or conception, like this, the story has changed a lot. The characters have changed a lot. The, like, like the passing of time has been allowed to happen in the story, which I feel like in a lot of long running comics, they don't, they don't address the passing of time in, in the same kind of way, you know? And, like it's not like Marvel superheroes where they're just like perpetually twenty five. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mortality is real when right. people. You know what? And and so yeah, your characters grow and they choose like characters that were little kids in the final quest. Characters that weren't even born yet. Um, they are adults with tribes of their own by the final quest. And I don't know. It just so I think that in the same way that you're not supposed. To, you wouldn't expect to sit down and review your entire life in one sitting, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're like, it, so I think I kind of, I kind of approach this in the same way where it's like, this is a 40 year old story that I'm going to sit down and read straight through. And I think that that's going to be a much different experience and perhaps not the way that it was intended to be absorbed, mm-hmm. you know? Interesting. Because like you're getting it all at once, not just having like your memory of how yeah, reading it was. Exactly. I think that's going to be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, it sounds, sounds to me kind of like Love and Rockets in a way. Where, yeah. Where there's passage of time happens and it's a big part of the book. Um, that's really you know, cool. That's so cool. This was my first comic that I ever read when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's also going to be really different just to, to read it start to finish as an adult. I'm curious to see if my favorite characters will be the same if my favorite, you know, storylines will be the same, things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've read it. I, I have read it a few times since, but not in a concerted straight through way. And I, I'm not caught up on the final quest. So yeah, um, that's my big winter comic reading endeavor. Look, if you re- if you like manga and if you like the story structure of manga, I think that you'll really dig ElfQuest, Mike. That's I. That's what I, I think. You're the third person to tell me that. Actually, <laughs> we're not wrong. Yeah, I. You know, and I. I'm, I'm. I want to believe. So you know, I'm. I'm gonna get down. I know that there's a big chunk of it online that you can read for free. So maybe I'll start yeah. there, and then maybe go to the library and get the rest, or get this big compendium that you've got, and uh, maybe try to read through the whole thing. I think that they're also in Comicsology Unlimited. Some portions of them. Oh snap! You have no excuse. None. <laughs> now I have. I have no excuse. Okay. Period. You will find a way, Mike. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also caught up a little on some image titles that came out this past December. Dark Fang number two by Miles Gunther and Kelsey Shannon. So Dark Fang is this amazing sort of comedic horror vampire story with a really strong ecological anti-corporate message, which like I'm here for, frankly. (laughs) This is the story that we need in 2018. Um, It's about a vampire named Vala who, um, you know, she was trans, she was a a fisherwoman and centuries ago and she was transformed to a vampire and she was kind of like a slave in this vampire's castle with his three brides and she kills them and just like goes into the ocean to live she's like fuck you guys i'm out and she's happy (laughs) under the sea with her sea friends for a while and uh and then there's an oil spill and it like ruins everything so she comes um out of the ocean to find out what the fuck and she goes on this awesome (laughs) killing spree where she compels these rich asshole dudes to give her all their money and then kill themselves which Teach me your ways. <laughs> so in issue two, one of her fangs is turning black and she's really concerned about this and she's to find out why. So she goes to consult the severed, rotted heads of the three brides that she killed and they kind of give her a lead and it's amazing. And um, I'm just going to say out of context and hopefully this will get you to read it. Ladies, please don't go swimming naked in a pool of jello. There's there's just stuff down there that is going to happen that's wow. not good. <laughs> wow. Okay. But I actually, so two things. I get a really strong Only Lovers Left Alive vibe from the themes. Because like okay. there was the like, you know, the, the idea that human beings are poisoning the planet, like that's a problem for vampires. And, uh, but what's, what's really different about this one is A, um, it's interesting to directly associate the vampire, which is traditionally in literature posited as unnatural, mm-hmm. with the with the actual earth. The there's an oil spill and now her fang is turning black and I don't know. That's to me an, an a, a divergence of traditional vampire lore that I find really interesting. And also the aesthetic of this is like totally disnified. Like if you were getting aerial vibes from my description of her living under the sea, like yes, that's what this <laughs> book looks like. It's really bright colors. It has a really sort of cartoonish animated vibe in the aesthetic and I I but I love it. It kind of just I don't know. It really draws the uh, push and pull between the horror aspect and the com- comedy aspect. I love this book. So, Dark Fang. And then finally, I read Sleepless number one, which is, oh, yes, yes, Sarah Vaughn, Leila Del Duca, Alyssa Sala, and Darren Bennett. I fucking love this book so much. Apparently, by the noises Mike made, he does too. Yeah. I mean, I've. Yes. <laughs> I'll let you take this. Go for it. Yeah. So it's a fantasy world. There's knights and princesses and evil uncles and court intrigue and murder. And I think also maybe love, but like slow burn love, which is the best kind. And a really cute dog cat fox thing that, you know, everyone needs one of those. Mm-hmm. So um, Serenic is an, a sleepless knight. We don't really know what's up with that. Like, is he dead? Is he a corpse? Is he a vampire? Why doesn't he sleep? He looks like he wants to die. He And he. there are really interesting, subtle uh, visuals that associate him with these bodies in the tomb. And there's like symbols on his tunic that uh, 
are also found in these in this tomb. So we don't really know what's up with this sleepless night. But he guards the lady poppy who's father the king has died and her uncle is the new king and he's shady as fuck and uh someone tries to kill her and of course serenic guards her and there's like a lot of references to like maybe they love each other i hope they do anyway (laughs) if if you like really if you really wish that you could like game of thrones but you can't get past how gross it is i don't know this might be for you it there's uh, there's all almost all the cast so far is people of color but it's like set in a fantasy world it's like high renaissance aesthetic it's just not all white people which is great you know it's like yes thank you there's literally no reason why you can believe in dragons and magic and necromancy and but only white people are there like <laughs> I, right. you know like because p.s like people of color are real so like yeah. you don't even have to suspend your disbelief they're right there What I love about this besides the story is the clues that are in the artwork are so important. So the the artwork isn't just illustrating the story. It's like really uh, essential components of the story. So you have to have a very, I don't know. You have to pay attention. You have your your visual literacy needs to be just as sharp as your uh, as you're reading the dialogue. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I like that though when they have when they have stories where it's like this like comics is a visual medium like you I like it better when there are stories where the art is adding something so it's not just like oh you could take this art away and the prose would still hold up I wonder if that's because Sarah Vaughn who's the writer I, I think she also is an artist and you know Layla Del Duca is just so amazing I love her aesthetic I love her um she just has a a really nice uh line it's kind of not too painterly but not too clean and and minimal it's like just the right amount yeah yeah absolutely I this is like the cover of this book drew me in and then I saw those first few pages and I was like oh shit this is this is a book for me now I love this yep it's great <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Kara, what about you? What did you read? How have you been? All that stuff. How was your new year and oh boy. Your, in your holiday celebrations? Oh, boy. Uh, I went back to New York for the holidays and it was a whirlwind, but it was also a cold whirlwind because mm-hmm. it was like five to ten degrees. And let me tell you, flying from that back to California where it was 60 degrees yesterday it was so nice. <laughs> like I just I stepped off the plane. I was like, what? I don't need to be wearing fleece-lined leggings under my jeans. I don't need to have a down jacket on. What? I don't even need a jacket today? How interesting. Tell me more. We get it. We get it, Kara. <laughs> you got it nice out there, okay? <laughs> it's just a nice change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I had to define my break with something besides festive cheer, it would be Star Wars because, oh my God, Star Wars. Yeah. And it's so like what happened was I saw Last Jedi on the thursday that it opened and i was sick because i was sick for like a month because surprise when you work with children you get sick all the time (laughs) oh god and um so i woke up the next morning convinced that like half the film was a fever dream (laughs) so and and, like i was like trying to remember everything that had happened and I called my mom because it was still a few days before I was coming home. And I was like, Mom, I realized why I'm freaking out so much about Star Wars. It's because when the prequels came out, um, my mom had 
like gotten all of the like tie in Star Wars books for my brother and I to read because she was like, oh, you're reading? You're reading stuff about Star Wars? Here, have all of the books about Star Wars. So we had like <laughs> the visual encyclopedias and like the diaries from the points of views of the characters that were written for like younger audience and like everything. And I was sure. like, I just don't have that now. So I go home and my mom has a mountain of Star Wars encyclopedias from the library that she checked out for me. <laughs> so like, I went through like 20 Star Wars encyclopedias and it was so fascinating because a lot of them were pre-Disney acquisition. So some of the canon is different. And so oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. like some of the encyclopedias that she got were like different editions of the same encyclopedia, but like a few years apart. And there was one that was like pre-Disney and post-Disney. And there were like a lot of changes. And I was like, what? Oh, um, yeah. It's a it's a huge thing. Right. It's I, I ultimately think some of it is for the better. But, you know, that's a whole other discussion. I think you and Renee are doing like 10 minisodes on that, right? <laughs> Isn't that what I saw on Twitter? <laughs> well, he saw me <laughs> tweeting about Star Wars nonstop. And he was like, we should probably talk about this. But yeah, like yeah. I was so that I was thinking about like what's considered canon versus not. And there are a few Star Wars comics that... Um, Dark Horse had published that I'd read when I was a little younger that just like really stick in my mind because I read them so often and I was like what there's more Star Wars than just the movies what oh yeah so thinking in particular about the Star Wars Tales series where it was like a different um, story in each issue just about stuff happening all over the Star Wars universe mm-hmm. Um and there are some stories in that first volume in particular that just because I read it so often when I was younger, I'm just like, no, like that, that happened. That's a thing. So um, like one of those stories was about Vader going to this like gorgeous, lush, like, w- like alien tropical planet to confront um, a Jedi master who was still living. And I think mm-hmm. this was written, written like pre prequels. Cause I don't think they really mentioned oh, order okay. 66 or anything like that. It was just like, no, like we're killing the Jedi. It wasn't like a systematic thing, but like, we're still doing it. Um, and the Jedi master that he's facing is this like, old, like very tall, very graceful old woman who's got, her hair and these really ornate braids and she's got this gorgeous like purple lightsaber like i think before mace windu had one and their hipster purple lightsaber yeah (laughs) (laughs) and so they're just like they're fighting but they're also like kind of having a dialogue about like the life cycle of things and there's all this like visual like symbolism with the subtlety of a brick to the face where it's like vader touches things and they die and like this woman like encourages life but it was just like i don't know this was at a time when like the only woman in star wars was princess leia and like if you wanted to count mon mothma sure so i remember like when i was younger reading this and being like what there's a lady jedi master this is awesome why do you have to kill her Um, and there's another story in the in the tales that always stuck with me. That was this little like couple page long comic where, um, you know, in A New Hope, when it looks like uh, Uncle Owen is going to go for that like red R four unit instead of R two D two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this story. I yeah, yeah. I know this one. This and is he's great. got like a bad motivator, and so the story that they 
posited in Tales is that that R4 unit was like a Jedi robot who uh-huh. like had a flash of the future if Luke took him instead of R2-D2. And so he dis- <laughs> like, like made his own motivator go bad and made himself blow up knowing that what mm-hmm. he was doing was right for the path that the Force wanted to take. And oh I always goodness, yeah. I always loved that. And so I like got really mad when I was reading through this pile of encyclopedias that my mom got from the library when they like had an entry about R4 and they said that what really happened was that R2D2 disabled him like right. on the Jawa crawler and I was like that makes no sense. That means that R2 would have had to have gone through and like messed with every single droid like on that rig for this story to be plausible like how dare you like how does r2d2 even know that these people are going to be looking for an astromech droid like come on Mm -hmm. what are you doing it just it made less sense to me than r4 being a jedi (laughs) (laughs) and i just got so upset um but i did try to not just do star wars stuff because oh my god so much star wars um, yeah, so yeah. I, I read a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic that I hadn't read before. Nice. So uh, I read Tales from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Volume 2. And it's a series of stories not written or drawn by Eastman and Laird, but done in that writing and art style of those early TMNT comics. And kind okay. of like set between stories that canonly happened that they wrote in that original run, which is now referred to as like TMNT classics or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've read like some of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics. I actually have like a couple volumes of the classics that I think I'll probably read for that episode I'm going to do with Nick. And there are just like so many weird characters that I just, you just did, like, didn't see on the TV shows. So I'm just like, wait, wh- tell me more about this like time traveling lady that randomly pops in to say, hey guys, we're going to go stop this like evil magician that you banished to the Cretaceous period. And then they end up Thus, like... Totally validating Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, by the way, but you know, we won't <laughs> go into that. <laughs> and it's just like, like all this random stuff. So these tales were like a really fun way to like pop into those stories, but get like a little extra stuff going on and it's just like it's all so ridiculous and there's all these like random characters and plot points that like show up at the 11th hour to save the day even though they've like not been introduced before so there's there's this one um story where the turtles uh meet leatherhead who is this um alligator that is living in the sewers under New York City. And he basically was like mutated with the same stuff they were mutated with, but in a different way. But um, they're very fine doing their own thing, but he's just trying to find out more about like what happened to him and why. And he was like living with the aliens that maybe had something to do with the chemical compound. That part I wasn't clear on because I'm not as up on my TMNT like early lore as I want to be. But like, meanwhile, there's this hunter dude stalking Leatherhead through the sewers because he's like, just like, he's killed everything that there is to be killed that's like worthy of game hunting. So now he wants to go against something like worthy of his talents. And this dude is dressed like so stereotypical, like big game hunter, like he's in like late 1800s safari gear he's Mm -hmm. got like a leopard like shawl around his neck he's of course completely ridiculous and 
there's like this random other dude like following him to try to like stop him from killing all these like exotic creatures but always gets there too late so you see him like super briefly when we first meet our our villain like right before he's leaving africa to fly to new york to hunt leatherhead and then the next time you see this dude who's hunting the hunter is like in the sewers when he's trying to shoot at leatherhead and the turtles and then he like throws a knife at the hunter and the hunter's like what have you done and the guy hunting him is like it's not important that you know who i am all you have to know is that I've just severed the tendon between your thumb and index finger that causes your trigger finger to fire. So your hunting days are over. And I was just like, what is happening? There's like no turtles in this story. Like I'm so confused. And it was just interesting (laughs) to go back to like this level of, I guess, storytelling simplicity where it's just like, and by the end of the episode, the bad guys defeated and this is also when the turtles were all wearing the same mask color. So they're all right. in like this reddish orangish mask. And like the only way you can tell them apart is from their weapons. Cause like their attitudes hadn't fully like separated yet. And I was just like, this is so fascinating. This is not what I'm used to. Like I'm used to like nineties and two thousands turtles. This is like eighties turtles right here. Yeah, I, I, I remember read, I've read, read a couple of those classic books, and it's it's wild stuff. Like, the older stuff, I don't know how they they convinced someone to make those into movies and TV shows, but it apparently worked. Right? Like something, there, something about that. There's this one part that, like, really bothered me, though. It's, like, at the start mm-hmm. of this crazy time travel adventure that they're doing, and they're, like, and the, like, time travel lady's, like, April, do you want to come, too? Because she's in the van with the turtles. And she was just, like no it's fine somebody has to make master splinter his sashimi and i was like what 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 (laughs) no girl what who who are you what have you done with april o'neill like come on oh boy it like really bothered me (laughs) i understandable that's that's so not april (laughs) o'neill wowzer well, um, for me, I read a handful of things, you know, since we had some time off and I did a bit of traveling and read a whole bunch of comics. But um, some of the r- more recent stuff I read, uh, Rogan Gambit number one. Um, this is kind of an obvious pick for me. Uh, this is Kelly Thompson and Pierre Perez. And this is, I don't know, this is a, it's an interesting book. It's a five issue mini series about Rogan Gambit. They get thrust together because they have to go on a mission where couples are in therapy so of course kitty pride picks rogan gambit to go do this um at the beginning of this book i kind of felt weird because i remember the last i think the last thing that i remember rogan gambit kind of like being together a discussion their relationship was kind of harsh because it was at the end of age of x where rogue is torn between gambit and magneto because of this whole extra dimensional thing that happens and uh I don't want to go into the specifics of it, but um, I didn't really want them to be together at the beginning of this book, which seems very opposite of everything that I think I've told everyone in the whole world about. Very very not you. Yeah, it's very not me. No, actually, it is very you because there's more angst that you could wring out of the situation (laughs) that way. See, okay, Tia, you get me. I do. Um, Yeah, so I I didn't want that, but then um, there's a moment in this issue where um, they both kind of look at each other face to face and and 
there's they think like we had something good at one point right maybe that's still there and so them going on this retreat or whatever to infiltrate something else whatever because stupid x-men plot um <laughs> maybe might be able to sell me in five issues about them getting back together fingers crossed we'll see x-men um, we're not here for the plot we're here for the characters what are you doing <laughs> Exactly. So, like, the plot is stupid, but, like, I, I love Gambit and Rogue, so I'm going to keep reading this book because I'm a sucker. And Kelly Thompson's actually a pretty great writer, so I'm happy about that. Um, I read uh, an anthology book called Blocked, which is a, a an anthology that I backed on Kickstarter a while ago. <clears throat> And I got the actual physical book a little while back, and I, it's been sitting on my shelf kind of just like staring at me to read it. Um, I was going to go to their launch party, but it turns out that I was out of town. And I was really bummed about that because I think that a lot of people involved are really cool. Um, and I like this book for the most part because the story is, the anthology is based around the idea of people having bad online internet relationships where you meet someone through Tinder or whatever, you meet up and it goes badly because of one thing or another. And that's a really curious thing because I've never ever done that. And so I wanted to read a, a book about it just to hear about people's sad stories. Um, but they're not all sad so much as just, this is a weird situation that I got the hell out of. Um, the, overall, the anthology was good. There was one or two or three stories that I didn't like. Um, one in particular was about a nice guy who doesn't, like, who deserves a girl that he, like, can, like, I don't know. That classic Launch nice him guy. Into oh, the sun. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, how did this get included alongside of a handful of other very positive stories about loving yourself over someone on the internet who treats you like shit? I, I just was really baffled about how a couple of those stories snuck into this anthology. So, um, overall, I would recommend it because I think there's some pretty good stuff in there. So, look that up on Kickstarter, look that up online. I think you can get it. I also read Sherlock Frankenstein and the Legion of Evil number three. This is Jeff Lemire and David Rubin's miniseries that is taking place of the Black Hammer story that's going on. So while Black Hammer is taking a break, there's this second miniseries that's going on, which I think is a great way to do tie-ins, by the way. If you're going to basically say, here's my main book, it's going to take a five or four-month break. During that four months, I'm going to replace that with a miniseries that ties into the greater story. You're only ever having to buy one book a month in order to read the entire story. I really like the way that they're doing that. Nick pointed that out to me, actually, that they were doing that, because I didn't realize that Black Hammer was on a break. But anyways, this miniseries is about our <clears throat> a character named Lucy Weber, who is the daughter of the mysteriously um, unfound Black Hammer in the Black Hammer main series. Um, this is her finding out that how the various heroes that are in the Black Hammer series disappeared, and she's trying to find a character named Sherlock Frankenstein, which is the coolest name ever. <laughs> I don't know if you guys watched the movie Mystery Men, but um, I don't remember what the villain's name in that movie was, but he has a very similar something Frankenstein, and I always love really complicated uh, evil villain names. Um, but anyways, this story is really good, and we're coming up on the final issue, and number three was basically building up to the climax of the story, um, and David Rubin's art is just fantastic. Uh, let's see, I also read, this is, I'm kind of split on talking about what my final pick is because they're both really, really good, uh, <laughs> but I did read uh, My Hero Academia Volume 9, this is by Kohi, I'm going to butcher this, so I'm so sorry, Kohi Horik Horikashi. Um, this this is a the ninth volume in this big huge basically what if the X Men existed in the anime in an anime universe totally not related to the X Men um, it's a world where people have quirks there's heroes and there's villains everyone has quirks and they fight you know good versus evil um, this story is a perfect volume in describing why I like it um, the story follows a character named Deku he had he is quirkless he didn't have a power when he was born and he 
magically gets this power from the greatest hero in the world um, who bestows it upon him. And he's trying to master that power, but it's so overwhelming because he's just a small child. So he goes to this school to try to learn how to manage his his power along with 5,000 other main characters in this story. Um, but the one thing that I like about Volume 9 is that there's a lot of character development. There is a lot of high-octane action that you'd expect from a shonen manga, but it's split up in such a way that it's easily to di- easy to digest, even though there's probably 15 characters involved all at once. I don't think that Western comics have managed to do this because I've read a lot of X-Men books that have this kind of storyline, and it feels all over the place and really, really sh- like shallow, whereas... In My Hero Academia, the actual character development exists, and the fighting and all the villains are super one-dimensional, one so it's really easy to dislike them and see that they're the bad guys. There's none of this like tragic supervillain stuff that we've kind of come to love here in the United States. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think it works really well for a book like this, where you've got a lot of characters you're trying to build up on the quote-unquote good guy side. You just need them to fight something every once in a while. Uh, I don't know why I don't let Western books get away with this, but manga does it so well. I just, uh, yeah, I love it. It's fantastic. Um, In the interest of our database of pronunciations for creator names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is definitely one of those. No, no. It's Kohei Horikoshi. Horikoshi. Okay. Yeah. My apologies. I'm a. I'm just a, a dumb Midwestern boy. No, who doesn't no, know how to say it's words. fine. The only reason <laughs> I know how to pronounce Kohei correctly is because uh, a really famous gymnast is named Kohei Uchimura. So. Oh, okay. Kohei. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. Thank you. Gymnastics, gymnastics saves the day again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, gymnastics. Finally, uh, this is a book that. I, I think it will surprise no one is my masterful what did I read this week super top forever pick. This is X-Men Grand Design numbers one and two in the time since we've been off. The first two issues of this series have been out and all my notes say is, uh, <laughs> I don't know really what to say about this book. It's, it's, it's the greatest note family. though. It, it really is. The thing about this book is it's, there's so many things that are done right about it. It's super detailed. The art is absolutely precise and perfect like every single panel had you can tell that ed piscor who, who's the writer and artist on this book you can tell he's taken his time with every single panel it is it's unbelievable like the work he's done on hip-hop family tree has been stupendous and i don't want to like discredit it at all but i think that this may be some of the best work he's ever done and by and large, this is one of the best X-Men books I've ever read. To document all of the history and make it have it all make sense and just kind of like, I don't know, smooth over those rough edges that really kind of don't, like, you can you can lose yourself in when you're reading the single issues. Like, I think once this whole X-Men Grand Design series is done, it's going to be told in blocks of two over six issues. I'm going to buy this for anyone who ever says they want to get into the X-Men because <laughs> it, it really, like clears up so many things you need to know about the origins and the weirdness that goes into the X-Men. And there are some, like, in issue two in specific, there were so many panels that I just wanted to, like, screen cap and, like, print out and put on my wall because they're so perfect. It's just all the original X-Men. The first two issues cover, I think, the first 60 issues of X-Men, plus a lot of flashback stuff gets put into the regular timeline so you can kind of see how David Haller, a character also known as Legion, shows up in the past from the future like because of age of apocalypse and that stupidity um oh my God, so that entire that... sentence makes me want to die <laughs> i know i know so so that whole scene of professor xavier and magneto meeting at this uh 
this in, I don't know it's, I don't want to say insane asylum it's a like a psychiatric treatment center um it it plays into the story that never actually showed up in the original printings of the book but showed up later in Age of Apocalypse as a flashback so they put all of that in there to later set up bigger stories um and there's one thing that Pisker does that is I I can't say that I know of any other I guess biographical type writers have done is he just he has this way with words and panels and and things that just kind of makes you feel at ease about a lot of information coming at you at once. Like, these these X-Men Grand Design books are huge. They are huge, fat books, and they cost $6. And it's an unbelievable price point, but I think for the quality of comic that you're getting, it is worth every single penny. And I'm so excited to buy this over and over and over again in hardcovers and then in omnibus and then so on and so forth. It's that good of a comic book and if you haven't seen these and you can't get these like wait for a sale get this book it's it's seriously some of the best comic books you can read right now so (sighs) i could go on and on about that it's it's so fucking good i'm i'm blown away by how good this book is but anyways i will i will stop my rambling um we can move on comic (laughs) books are coming out on january 10th 2017 what are you both excited for tia let's start with you again I'm excited for Sleepless number two, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> having having so. read and loved number one. <laughs> Please yeah. see my take on number one from about, <laughs> I don't know, 15 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, Kara, I mean, unless there's anything you want to say about issue two, Kara, what's, uh, what are you excited for? I really love Hellboy books, but I since I got into them by reading trades i'm just very Mm -hmm. comfortable waiting for trades for them like i got to a point where i realized i was totally caught up and could like start reading monthly books and like be Mm -hmm. current and then i was like why when it's so much more satisfying as like a full story so uh hellboy and bprd 1954 the trade is coming out this week so i'm like yes new trade give it to me so is that the book that has the really beautiful paula rivera cover or am I thinking of something? I might be thinking Maybe? of a different trade. I don't, know. I don't know. All I know is that I just I just generally love most Hellboy stories. So just having more, I'm like, yes, pleasant. Give it to me. <laughs> That's great. Um, How about you, well, Mike? For me this week, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for Descender Volume 5, Rise of the Robots. This is Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nguyen. Holy smokes! I mean, Descender is probably one of the one of the better image books that's been coming out for a while. Um, Dustin Nguyen's art is unparalleled out there, and Descender is a fantastically like fantastically beautiful book that has an amazing story um, about a robot. Uh, I think we've talked about this book a lot on this show, so I don't want to go into like the whole origin or whatever. But um, this volume is the is the it's kind of a big huge moment in the story given the title um if i remembered how the end of volume four ended and again to your point care i think this this book reads really well in trade as well so i i did get caught up i think after volume two and i told myself no no no, i loved reading it in trade i'm just gonna keep reading it in trade and that is like for this book it's probably one of the better ways to do it because i think i don't know how i would deal with the tension month to month i would i would be clawing out my eyes waiting for it (laughs) better to wait a few months and then be able to read a whole chunk of material exactly exactly Before we start this week's episode topic, I want to remind everyone that our Q&A episode is coming up February 14th. That's when it's going to be released. So please make sure to send us an email or a tweet 
or post in the Goodreads group. Ask us a question. We'll probably open up like a general Q&A thread on the Goodreads group if you're part of that. Um, but send us questions. We have this whole episode. We want to basically interact with you guys, answer any questions you may have about comics or life or whatever. Please don't be rude and lewd and crude and all that stuff. If it rhymes, that means you have to listen to me. Um, that's the spell I'm casting on you from this podcast. So before, so, so with all that said, please send us questions. We, we really want to interact with you guys and talk about comic books with people. But the topic this week is all about how to fix the industry that churns out money-making intellectual properties yet still struggles to pay creators. We want to fix this. We have some ideas maybe how to fix this. Uh, but there's a little bit of history that goes into it. And I think, Kara, you're going to start us with just some brief overview about why this whole weird ecosystem and economy exists. How and did maybe we get we can here? How to fix it. Yeah, how did we get here and how can we fix it? Let's start with that. How did we get here? Okay, a super brief history of the comic book industry in the US. So, comic books as a medium start in the 19th, like late 1930s, early 1940s, coming out of the like serial pulp tradition of sensationalist like cheap novels that are super accessible for everyone and kind of coming out of um, some like like there have always been there have been cartoons drawn for like hundreds of years and that being turned into a sequential um, piece that may have gone on for pages was something new to the earliest early 20th century in America as well as Europe um so in america during world war ii there were comics everywhere like kids couldn't get enough of comics the war was on patriotic heroes like captain america really caught the public imagination wonder woman caught the public imagination and then in the 1950s when you're more in the cold war and people are started to be suspected of being communists and everyone's in a little bit of more of a fear-based atmosphere dr frederick wortham comes in writes The Seduction of the Innocent, which is published in 1954, basically saying that comic books are corrupting the youth of America and making them violent homosexuals. And he, it like gets to um, a point where Congress is doing hearings about this topic to see if there mm-hmm. should be some kind of regulatory commission for comic books, because up until then they had none. And there was just like, if you want to pick an awkward death knell for comics like regulation like people who are against that it's probably when i think the like editor or like publisher for ec comics was called to the stand and they were like oh so you you like defend the comics that you're publishing as being like acceptable for children and like wholesome and reasonable and he was like yeah and they're like well how about this one and they show this cover from a recent like ec comics issue where someone's like holding up like a bloody head with like the eyes rolling back and like the blood dripping <laughs> out of the head. And he, yeah, yeah. he was just like, Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so like, like that decade comics got um, like this terrible reputation that they never really quite recovered from. And then, as you went into the 60s and 70s. Which is bizarre because we, there's also a stereotype that they're just for children. Right? Right, So, right. like, and then as you get into, like, away from the Silver Age of the 50s and 60s into the Bronze Age of the 70s and the 80s, storytelling does become targeted at adults, like, more sophisticated. The direct market where um, they're selling directly to comic shops become a thing. And then in the 90s, um, the dis the distribution apparatus kind of uh 
like explodes because there is this huge speculatory market in comics kind of around the death of Superman storyline when all of a sudden uh, publishers started doing more like crazy covers and variants and everything's a collector's item and like everyone was buying comics and then nobody was buying comics and a lot of shops folded and diamond distributors became the monopoly of comics distribution apparatus in the u.s by buying up like basically all of their smaller competitors that folded after this kind of speculatory bubble burst so direct market comic shops place their orders every month for comic books send those orders to diamond and diamond gets the books from the publishers and then distributes them to the comic shops Mm -hmm. if the comic shops fail to sell their books they can't return them they have to swallow the profits so comic shop owners are very usually have pretty lean margins of what they will buy and what they will take a chance on and since pre-orders have to go out three months in advance if a book a new book isn't doing well within the first like three like few months it's possible it will fold because of this weird pre-order system that exists and because of the direct market you really don't see comic books anywhere but specialty comic shops at this point so it's this weird insular market that is run by a few specific companies and then like lots of like indie people kind of scrabbling to get in at the edges and that is where we're at with comics on a grand industrial scale at the moment and then of course like dc and marvel are owned by conglomerates at this point and uh we can kind of get into the nitty-gritty from here yeah and then there's also the garbage like in order to get certain variant covers you have to order this many of this book that you maybe don't even want and there's there's all sorts of manipulative ways that uh the orders that uh, retailers place are not necessarily in the best interest of the shops or their customers. Yeah. And I mean, we did a whole episode about the variant, about variant covers. I know we've talked a lot about ordering and stuff on the show. Um, I think we did an episode all about pull lists that goes pretty in detail about all of that stuff. So if you want to actually get some of the real nitty gritty about how all that works, check out those episodes. And I know that one thing that, um, Kira, I don't think you mentioned was about the whole ownership of interne- intellectual properties, which is a big thing coming out of the 60s and 70s and 80s um, and so on and so forth. And even to this day, we still kind of struggle with some of that where when you're working for the big two, um, whoever is credited with the creation of something tends to be the person that potentially could make the most money out of it but there was huge disputes and there still are i think one of the biggest ones was some neil gaiman and todd mcfarlane feudal stuff that happened with angela and a bunch of other characters but um this whole thing started in like the 70s where jack kirby wanted credit for a lot of the work that he had done and i don't want to say that jack kirby was the only person because he's not but he's the one that i'm the most familiar with um and he wanted credit for some of the creators so that his family could potentially make some money off of the naming and cre- you know, of all these major characters that Marvel is making a ton of money out of, but he was getting nothing for, um, which is why you see every single person who works for Marvel or DC, they're all work for hired so that basically they sign a contract that says anything you create here is ours, we own it, the end, that's it. Um, which is kind of a strange thing because in a lot of other media types like when you are the creator or you're the person whose name is on the credits you typically are making some money for that 
Um, but comics is still this weird thing where we're where comic book creators are creating these these characters that people fall in love with and then they get made into movies and action figures and television shows and everything else and all the money goes directly to the creating the creating company not to the creator themselves because of these types of contracts um, and so we're we're running into this problem more and more and we have been I think for the last decade what are we on movie 21 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and when you come back to it and you think about who's being credited for all of the creation of storylines and stuff like that you see some names in there when you look at Captain America's Winter Soldier you see based on the stories by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips now we don't know the specifics I don't know the specifics I should say but are Brubaker and Phillips getting any extra kickback for that likely not likely they were went in they were work for hire they created this story and then Marvel made a movie off of it and they reaped the benefits for it which is really bizarre because that's just not how media works nowadays. You know, <laughs> if your name goes on something, you should be getting paid for it. That's the, at least that's the American way in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, you know, not to bring everything back to Star Wars, but it's like how when George Lucas was doing A New Hope and he agreed to do it for like the merchandising benefits, like mm-hmm. he got paid for his idea. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just not really something you're going to see in at least mainstream comics. Yeah, not unless, not if you're working for the big two, at least. Um, and even then, I don't know how how that works with, say, Boom Studios or Dark Horse, where you're creating characters within an existing IP um, versus creating unique, brand new characters for yourself. If, say, like, for the end of the fucking world, that's, that's a comic book TV show that just got picked up. We were talking about that in the break. Tia, I'm going to watch it, I promise. Um... You know, Charles Forsman is probably reaping the benefits of that. Netflix probably paid him a nice check to make the show. And then based on viewership or however Netflix calculates their profit margins, he's probably making some money off of that. And I think that's awesome. Like, he totally deserves it. That's his creation. I'm actually kind of confused about how that show is was created because I think that it originally aired on Channel 4 in the UK. Did it really? Yeah. Oh, see, I didn't know that. So okay. I, so I that noticed that it was being British. called a Netflix original, but I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Mm, mm. Well, see, it's funny because Archie, uh, or to say, sorry, Riverdale is broadcast on Netflix in Canada, but not in the United States because yeah. we have CW. But yeah, they're chilling they adventures is going to be Netflix. Yeah, they're broadcasting right. it in right. the UK too. And so people are like, oh, it's the Netflix show. I'm like, no, it's CW. It's so yeah. CW, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting to see, like, you know, to see creators who are, who are, who are the creators of these huge properties and these huge things um, probably not getting any kind of kickback or maybe in, in the case of someone like Rob Liefeld, um, you know, he probably dictated something because he was still at Marvel when he created Deadpool. He probably dictated something to say, hey, any merch, any kind of stuff, like he probably gets something out of that um, because in the 90s, you know, the early 90s when Image was, when the creators of Image broke off from the big, the big two to go create their own company, you know, the biggest reason why they left was they weren't getting their like due for for all the things that they were doing. They didn't think they were getting paid enough. And I realize it, it sounds kind of childish if you read into the whole thing. It's pretty complex. Some creators were, I think, getting pushed harder than others. Um, and they all broke away and they all started Image. And now any t- anything that gets created out of those companies is owned by the creators. And I think that those contracts are pretty hard in terms of determining who gets the actual kickback. And I know Image gets a piece, but it's not like they get everything. Well, um, the thing that you have to keep in mind, too, about Image is that it's really 
really uh, set up for creators who already have a a following an audience you know you might wonder why would someone work for hire if it's just you know horrible and they're throwing pennies at you but you know I understand the pressure that creators are under to develop their audience and that's really hard to do and so you kind of have to weigh is it worth it to you know not own my work but have the distribution and the PR and the exposure reach yeah the reach of of these big companies that are totally going to take advantage and and, or at least skew things to their advantage and I put this in the show notes but everyone who is thinking about this or who's concerned about it needs to go follow Spike Trotman from Iron Circus like right now and oh, yeah. and just literally yeah. do everything she ever says like just do everything she says and listen to her because she I think is such a great example of like we don't need you she she raised yeah. over a million dollars um on Kickstarter yeah for books I was gonna say she's like one of the most successful yeah. Kickstarter creators I've ever seen and you know what <laughs> I'm sure it was hard work and that she you know I, <laughs> I'm sure that she never sleeps like I don't know how she does it it's incredible I mean how but, does any entrepreneur do anything you yeah. hustle and you make it work she definitely doesn't sleep because I know she's tweeting it all hours <laughs> yeah. but the thing is is like she's always tweeting the most interesting things too like yeah, yeah. I don't know it's she follows Spike Jobin anyway now we have Kickstarter and we have social media and there are ways of developing your audience and developing your brand and your intellectual properties outside of the the big two and the sort of diamond distribution to direct market model. Mm-hmm. And so um, you just, I don't know, I think that it's important to understand how that system works in order to figure out the ways around it. And, and Kickstarter is definitely proven to, I think, it to be right now the most robust way to do it. Yeah, I agree. Because part of the problem, too, with stuff like image is it's all well and good to say, oh, my idea is brilliant and it's going to be a hit. But meanwhile, it's going to take, you know, a month to put out an an issue. And like, who's paying your rent that month? You know what I mean? It's not like you get an advance. So, you know, you, you really kind of have to follow the money in that sense, too, where people who have the privilege of having like a financial cushion can put more of their efforts into their creative ideas. Whereas, you know, there are, I'm sure people who have really amazing creative ideas that we'll never see because they are trying to pay their bills. I think that something that's like less easy to quantify, but is still a huge deal when it comes to this industry is the, the attitude about, creativity and how much it's worth because I do feel like you still get the sense in a lot of places where it's like oh but you the creator should be honored to work here and so like (laughs) yeah and like you see versions of that on like publisher level stuff but you also see that on like scammier lower level stuff where people are like oh well you should you should draw my idea because it's a great idea like I can't pay you for your art 
but like you should just do it because it's great exposure for you. (laughs) Like that's so (laughs) ubiquitous and so gross. And that attitude is, I think, something that's keeping the industry down because people are devaluing their work on like a mass scale. And then it becomes the situation where the work that gets made is the work that has money behind it. And that's never in anyone's best interest except the person with the money. And so if you want to change this, like there are things that individuals can do to change this, which is support artists directly. So find the creators that you love and support their Patreon support their Kickstarter, write reviews for their creator-owned books, like be part of building their audience, retweet their work when they put it on Twitter, or I don't know, just like that, that's a a thing you can do that doesn't even cost you anything. But really, like, if you want to support creators and help them make work that is original and fresh and I don't. I hate to use the word authentic, but like that isn't <laughs> that isn't being driven by corporate metrics. Then then you you need to you need to support them. Like they the money has to come from somewhere, and then like it, it needs to come from the audience if that's what the audience wants. I think that's the only way we're ever going to send the message. I mean, look at Marvel just canceled the, all of the books with female leads and and people a lot of books with people of color and like mm-hmm. you know they've they've got their black panther books still going because i guess the movie is coming out it would be my mm-hmm. cynical like reasoning for that but i just feel like i mean that's a pretty good book too well no of I course mean, like, but i like, don't want to so discredit was, it like that so was hawkeye you know sure so sure. like i don't think that a book being good is really what they're looking at they're looking at numbers and I just feel like if you if you want to take control over the books that are available to you and the work that's available to you, then, you know, cut out the middleman and just support the creators directly. Yeah. I mean, there's a handful of creators that do have like Patreons and do Kickstarters independent of their big two work. And I think that that's something you should definitely look out for. Um, and I was I was going to say we should also make sure to mention Drip, but that sounds really fucking weird to say without any context because <laughs> Drip is the is the Kickstarter equivalent of Patreon that apparently is pretty cool. I know that um, Spike is on that. I think she said yeah. Um, and it's supposedly it's going to be it's going to be a new big thing. And it really it doesn't matter where you go to support the creator. It's, it's the fact that you are supporting them. Um, and in the 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 one thing to say about that is sure you're not going to end up in a situation where your books are going to be $2.99 an issue. They're probably going to be closer to $3.99 or $4.99. But those books are typically longer. They're typically higher quality. And when you back them at certain levels in Kickstarter or Patreon or whatever, you do get a lot of extras. You'll get free stickers. You'll get a lot of free extra little things, paraphernalia that goes along with those books because you're helping someone in a way that they are directly seeing your influence. You're like, Tia said, you're going directly to the creator, and that mean, makes all the difference. The the one other thing to say with as far as writing reviews is think about all the independent books that you've purchased that maybe were like one off, and you're like, oh, this sounds interesting, or we've recommended on this show something that's like a Comicsology submit, or we say go to this Kickstarter, or go to pick up this small book from this indie publisher. Chances are you're the only person writing that review. You're getting a very very close 
direct influence on that creator by rating it a four star or a five star or whatever. Um, your influence can be like huge if if you actually take the time to do it. So don't think that oh you don't need to write that review or even just click that four or five star rating. You totally should, and that goes for this podcast too. But I'm not talking <laughs> about the podcast. <laughs> I mean, but th- that's all I wanted to say about that as well. I wonder what the impact is here of the monthly floppy model that American comics seem to be entrenched in versus a band designé or original graphic novel format. Uh, I don't know. I just, when I think, when I think about the, the way, so, so if you want to get like really, (laughs) really socialist about it, um, tear the whole system down to you. This is the We Read Comic Books podcast. (laughs) (laughs) One of the ways that people are kept uh, sort of trapped in in the system is is where they they don't own their labor is when they don't have time or bandwidth to create or create things outside of that system so like if you're if you're like trapped in a monthly system where you're an artist and you've got to make your deadlines and like every month you're working on this marvel book then when are you making your original graphic novel you know so i don't know and and this i feel like we're we're if you like x-men fine like great that's i'm not attacking i'm not judging you it's okay you're crying i'm crying it's fine it's fine (laughs) but i think that people should be aware that the artists and creators who work on these ips that they don't own that does have an impact on on their overall creative output i think and what they're capable of doing like i'm so excited i saw that marco rudy is is doing um, an original graphic novel and that he's been working on it for a while and i'm so excited and i love his marvel work and he's one of my favorite artists and i've just been waiting for this and i'm so excited and i'm just like i'm just like ready to throw money at him right now to have this book you know (laughs) (laughs) but i don't think that he ever could have made it if he was still on a, a monthly marvel book Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, it's it's funny because you know I think you had mentioned earlier about how does the OGN model work versus the single issue model, and you know I think we've we've talked about this many times on the show, and I, I've been thinking about this because I was um, I was I read something online I don't remember what it was I was either a, a flurry of tweets or maybe it was an article I can't tell the difference these days, <laughs> um, but uh, you know. I, Somebody was talking about this and how um, they brought up Nimona, which is like a perfect example of how it's all about orientation of your book, like where you place your book based on how well it sells. And Nimona as a book sells incredibly well. I think it won it won, it won some awards and it was marketed as a children's or not a children's, like a yeah, young adult. adult book versus an actual comic book, even though, in my opinion, Nimona is a comic book. That's an OGN right yeah. there. Um, it's a series of chapters inside of a book, um, but it was placed in the actual novels, like prose section of bookstores, and it sold way better because people didn't think of it as a comic. And I don't know if that's just a one-off chance, and it totally could be. But I think that OGNs and should be probably marketed that way versus saying, "Oh, here's a new comic book," because it, in in a weird way, we still have that thing that we talked about earlier at the beginning of this segment about how there's this stigma still attached to comic books. Um, and I know that we've been trying to fight it, and every we go back and forth on whether it's getting better or not. Um, but for some reason, 
a, gra a graphic novel sold as prose works better and sells better and is distributed better because it's, it's got HarperCollins to the back of it. It's, it's getting its advertising like a regular prose novel would um, versus comic books. And it's a question of are these publishers or is it on the publisher? Because when it comes to independent work, you know, you have to pay for the marketing and do all the marketing yourselves. Like where can we find a happy middle ground to help out these independent folks who maybe don't have that kind of exposure or don't like even if they do have the exposure within the comics you know world how do we get that exposure to grow beyond that um without taking it away the idea that it is a comic book yeah it's hard i saw on twitter recently people saying oh you know the stereotype of unfriendly comic shops is a thing of the past and it's like um no it's not it's alive and kicking not to mention the fact that people there are people who don't live anywhere near a comic shop even if they wanted to go in one so like right. To to sort of ghettoize comics and graphic novels, it is just cutting off your nose to spite your face at this point. And I totally agree. I think that, you know, there's this idea, you know, I know, Kara, you practically have this, like, as a stamp to put on people's foreheads, like, <laughs> comics is a medium, not a genre. And, yeah, it's like, hey, if you are um, an indie creator and you... It, it would just, I don't know, it would be great to be able to have your book in places where A, people can access it and B, where it has context for what is in it. And I mm -hmm. think that that bookstores do a better job of that than comic shops in a lot of cases. I'm just thinking back to like my own, my own like personal journey with comics, which was partially like having my parents pick up like Archie Digest at the grocery store but partially also like my mom being really big on having my brother and I like be at the library and get books at the library and once like she and the librarians figured out that I was really into like comics and graphic storytelling they just like every time there was a new comic or trade or graphic novel like the librarians brought it like right to me and I just totally devoured it but that was all like trades it was all book form and oh my god every co comic book in my local library is classified as young adult and i was looking at the really? very very sad two shelves of graphic novels that they have in the young Aww. adult section and they are so not young adult like there are many books <laughs> there that i'm like uh this is not for children hello <laughs> so yeah it's such a it's such a weird thing still yeah. And then I remember like when I started going to a comic shop, like I had to look up where one was like I had to go out of my way to find it. And then when I got there, I had to like I had to basically become a scholar of DC Comics to understand what the hell was going on in Teen Titans. And it was like you had to work at it and you shouldn't have to work at it. Like, what the heck is that? That's like so many barriers for entry right there. And like my my local comic shop is no more and hasn't been for a few years now but I like had a, a talk with the owner like shortly before it closed I was like this is like I, I have loved this place it was like always so nice but like I never totally felt welcome by patrons like staff yes patrons not so much because it would always be like this cluster of 30 something dudes by the front of the shop talking about whatever book it was and they just had like no interest in sharing their knowledge or like being um, like like considering that an 18 year old girl might also want to talk about Justice League. Like so I just never really felt like I was 
in like if the shop was like empty or like one or two other people or just like me and my friend hanging out it was like great but I always like and I got to a point where I went there for like a decade so I like felt comfortable but I didn't like it was just because my stubbornness that I kept going like it wasn't because people went out of their way to be like oh my god you want to love comics have you tried this I had one two conversations that I can remember with other patrons of the shop the whole 10 years I was there who like went out of their way to be like oh do you like this you might also like this but aside from that it was just like oh like what's a girl doing here yeah and I I think that the um the publisher's also still think that that core audience is the one that they need to focus on. And so when if they control the intellectual property and they control the money, then books like America are never going to succeed. They are they are literally set up to fail from the beginning. And that's so upsetting because there are plenty of big two books that I would l- love to read, but I just feel like they don't want me to read them. Mm-hmm. And I'm tired of be- feeling that way. This is why I felt like it was such a huge need for Christmas. To, this is slightly tangential, but um, like for Christmas, my nephew, you know, he he's into like the Avengers and he loves the Avengers and he loves the Hulk and all this stuff. But um, so for Christmas, I was like, well, I want to get him a comic book because I'm going to be that uncle. <laughs> and uh, so I decided to just I went online and I found like what are some of the best like highly reviewed like children's young adult like my nephew's seven. Um, and so I was like, what what are some of the, the best children's like non big two non anything like that you have heard of comics that are out there and so I grabbed him this graphic novel and he's read it like six times since Christmas and he loves it and it's just like this one-off thing uh well I should say it's a small series about this this hero kid who goes on a on an adventure to fight goblins and like that's the kind of like cool stuff like indie it's an independent comic made by Harper Collins or Scholar I don't remember uh or Scholastic but still it's a comic book that you probably wouldn't see sitting on the shelf at your comic shop but it's like a it's a good non- non big two kind of comic book that you can get someone into very early to say hey it's not just dc and marvel that's out there like you can say like look at all these other types of comic books that you can read and if you start someone young or you start someone right when they want to get into comics and they have no idea what comics are i mean and this is a very small subset of children sure but um it it can be super helpful so that when they do end up if they do end up ever going to a comic shop they aren't directly looking at the superhero books they're maybe looking for something that's different um, yeah, but I can try the, to wrap the, that back around. But the thing is, is it's like the publishers say, well, this is what sells. So they continue making yeah. that. And then they pay the creators who have a track record to make those comics. And the people who are the core audience continue to feel like comics belong to them. And then when they, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, yeah, I guess we'll, there's all these other people who kind of want to read comics. So we'll like let this woman of color do a thing and then they do literally nothing to change the distribution or the marketing like they don't they don't set the book up to be successful and it's like oh see we can't we just can't make it work it just doesn't sell yeah and and so I, yeah it's like this I see that self-fulfilling my prophecy yeah well it's like the generation x book which i've been praising i think since it started um i think for all every ad that i saw about X-Men in any other book or even the X-Men books themselves. They were all for X-Men Blue and Gold and maybe you'd get one Generation X advertisement and that was it. And it sucks because like 
why wouldn't you equally want to, why wouldn't you want all three of those books to grow? Um, or all, I mean, there's like a jillion X-Men books, but I never saw any ads for cable either. And that book is somehow surviving and generation X, which had advertisements, isn't it? Why wouldn't you advertise it to people who are not already reading X-Men books is my point also, you know, and like, creators who could do something new and interesting and different they don't get they don't get the 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 track record and then that makes it harder for them to approach image with their indie pitch you know what i mean right. so it actually becomes this domino effect where it really i think this gets back to the heart of the question like why can we make these uh, money making IPs, but we can't pay creators. And it's like, it's because this self fulfilling prophecy of creation and distribution prevents creators outside of that very narrow echo chamber from ever developing their brand. And so you have stuff like Iron Circus and Kickstarter, and they can, go, you know, we're starting to develop a way around that problem. But mm-hmm. like, it's really in, baked into the industry at this point. And yeah, rant. Exactly. <laughs> hey, you know what? That's good. I think I think Kara, I don't know if you had anything to add to that. No, I I was just thinking when you were talking about advertising, having a flashback to like me as a teenager being like obsessed with birds of prey and wondering why mm-hmm. they weren't like advertising in Seventeen magazine. Cause I'm like, this is like a story about, you know, kick-ass ladies and it's being written by a woman because gail simone was writing it at that point and i was just like why aren't you trying to get more women to read this book like now now i know but like back then i was like this (laughs) makes like how or like i forget where but i saw like a women's magazine like touting one of the um comics that was like published as a graphic novel by like a book publisher and I got so excited because I was just like, yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, expand your audience and, like, make stuff that's, like, you know, not being totally horrible towards other people. Like, make stuff that people right. want to read, you know? Right, right. Well, uh, let's let's round this off here. I want to, I, I think we could, we could go on and I... I, I feel like there's there's definitely a handful more rants we could go into. Well, I um, I have, an, but, I have an, an an anarchist question for you guys real sure. quick. Um what do you think would happen if we just said like if if like we were in charge, all right? Pretend for a minute that we're in charge of all of comics. Oh no. If we just <laughs> we're in charge of all of comics and we say, "You know what? The direct market makes absolutely no sense and we're going to move to a trades only publication cycle like they do in France." That would be awesome. Let's do oh, it. Oh boy, that would be that. That would be interesting if it would drive. It could be. It could work if we drive down the prices of those trades. I think like they can't be fifteen to eighteen dollar trades. They have to be like twelve max for six issues or something like that. That would be the only way I think it would work. But I think that that could work because graphic novel sales go up every year. Well, it's, I, it, graphic novel and collected editions, I should say, go up every single year. And single market, direct market, single issues stay about the same. I think Ben doesn't air typically around 48 pages. So that would be about five issues of a of a floppy collection. So that kind of checks out at oh, around right. 12 bucks unless you're Marvel. Yeah. For some yeah, reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but yeah, but if we think of non-big two um, financed uh, trades or collected editions, right? Like those usually, they usually stick between 10 and 15, 
right? So if we stick to that model, I think it could work. And that's why that's where image is seen as success. So obviously it works to a certain extent. Well, because they don't they do like the first volume in a series is generally like 10 bucks. And then after that, the price goes up a little bit. But it's like that for, for bigger books. They do. Right. Yeah. And like that first issue is like the hook. Like we want you to try this thing. Here's your incentive. Right. Okay, but right. imagine that you paid three ninety nine for five issues. I mean, it's like if you if you have that instead of floppies, you're not. You know what I mean? Like the people who would be buying the floppies are now buying the trades, and right. the people who trade weight are buying the trades. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just think like that should be something to be considered because every single time, and I try so many times to like get my non-comics friends into comics, or at least to like find a comic that they like so that they can get a glimpse into like the stuff that I enjoy and I always just have to explain why they have to wait to find out what happens next and like when every single time I find myself like trying to explain the distribution model I'm like this is so dumb like why are we still doing this you know what though fanographics like drawn in quarterly there's a ton of publishers that don't do monthly floppies and and those tend to speak to the people who are not think that they're not comics people more than the big two or even image that's true that's true but they're but their books typically they're they're a different kind of comic book in a lot of ways they're not this big superfluous drama um that has folks fighting and screaming and yelling and stuff. I mean, because even images like that, even if it is an indie book, there's not a lot of super heroics in these fanographics drawn in quarterly types of books, which are tend to lean towards a type of audience that are like, well, this is higher than regular comic books. <laughs> well, I'd rather, look, I'd rather have something that's shorter and self-contained and better. Like, I think of this as how my TV viewing habits have changed over the last couple of years. I reached a point where I was just completely fed up with like the 22 issue like 22 episode um tv cycle because it was just an arbitrary number and episodes in a season became like filler episodes or there were like weird plots and subplots shoehorned in and i'm like over it i don't want to waste that much time like i'm only on this planet for like 100 years i don't want to like waste it watching 22 episodes of a mediocre show so like (laughs) (laughs) i eat vegetables so. I, mean, I stopped i stopped watching supernatural as well it's fine oh I get my it. god no like i stopped i stopped supernatural <laughs> i stopped arrow i stopped flash i have stopped yeah. basically everything except for like riverdale and empire because i'm like i don't have the time and i'd rather watch like 10 episodes of a quality show that has been brought over from like the BBC where I'm getting like a story that is just as long as it needs to be. And it's good quality and I can get it out in like a day and not just like waste. I don't even know what's like 22, like a whole, like a whole like calendar day. It's a lot of time. Don't add it. You don't want to know. (laughs) So I I actually, you know, that's actually kind of piquing my interest in the sense. I'd like to, I should probably try to reach out to somebody from Drawn and Quarterly and, or Fanagraphics and see if they'd be willing to come on the show and just talk about how that distribution model works for them um, to see if it, I mean, because obviously people are doing it and it's the only place that they publish. So it must work to a certain extent. Um, so maybe maybe I'll try to do that for this upcoming year. It's a brand new we'll year. Get We've on got that. so many fucking things going on. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. We'll get the intern but, on it. Right. We can do it so all. We're gonna, yeah, Jesus. Oh my God. I read comic books intern. Oh, that's a goal. Uh, anyways, all right. So let's uh, let's wrap this up. We've been going on for a little while. So um, where can people find you on the internet? Actually, before we wrap up, no, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. Where can people find you on the internet, Tia? You can find me 
on Twitter at Portrait of Madame X. I'm on Twitter at K-A-R-A-S-Z-A-M and on medium.com slash at Cara.S-Z-A-M. And you can read all those fantastic Riverdale summaries, which are amazing. Still amazing. Thank you. Uh, you can follow me. Uh, I mean, I really do love them. I love like watching an episode and then immediately just diving in because I, I don't want to spoil myself and all that stuff. So anyways, uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Mike Rappin. You can follow the show at IRCB Podcast where we retweet and post all sorts of stuff. And we want questions from you, so send us questions there. I post a poll almost every Friday, pretty much every Friday, such as who is the tallest and right now the winner would will surprise you so (laughs) go out there and vote we also have a goodreads group where there are weekly threads uh this week's thread was x-men grand design because obviously (laughs) there's a monthly show there's discussions in general i think we've had some creator q a's is that a thing yeah yes we have we're trying to do a handful of more this year yep yep. it's gonna be good so check that out on goodreads oh we also have a website that would be good to mention (laughs) Hi, guys. Yes. I'm here. Um, IRCBpodcast.com is our website. You can find all of the episodes. You can find all of the links to all the things and the show notes. And uh, yeah, pretty much all. That's where our it, creator pronunciation glossary is, oh, right? Oh, yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. There is a page that has a list of all of our creators and how to pronounce their names. We're adding to that constantly. If you think of any that you know um, that are commonly mispronounced, or if you have a question and you want us to find out how to pronounce someone's name, or if you're a creator and you're like, please stop saying my name wrong, <laughs> just hit us up. Yes. It's okay. There's, it's not nothing to feel ashamed about. I mean, Kanye West had to even say in one of his songs how to pronounce his name early in his career because no one knew. <laughs> yeah. You too can be the yeah. Kanye of comics and have your name pronounced correctly. <laughs> uh, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends about our show. And you can email us at ircb at destroythecybe.org. If you take that dot out, it becomes destroy the cyborg, if that helps you with your spelling. <laughs> And uh, we have a Q&A episode coming up February 14th. So be sure to tune in. Yeah, uh, Infinity Shred, they do all the music for this show. They're the absolute best. Super kind guys. Uh, Xander's a wizard. He also edits the show. Um, and he moved very recently. So I hope that all went well for him and that he he's doing well in his life. He's, he's just living his best life right now. Uh, finally, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are fantastic. Kickstarter stuff is going out if you're a Kickstarter backer. Get ready for your shirts and your pins and your all your all the cool stuff that I'm just going to smash together in a bag and send over to you. Gently. <laughs> so, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think that's what we're going to call it this week. So thanks for listening. 